the pandemic impacts our lives in countless ways. Work, school, play, and relationships are fundamentally changing. While the virus might be motivating that change, technology is driving it. The influence of computers, smartphones, and tablets is accelerating across all aspects of our lives. On the one hand, it's fantastic that technology allows us to remain connected, allows us to continue with work and school. However, technology also brings risks to our health and well-being. Sitting motionless while working on devices leads to muscle problems. Staring at screens can harm vision. We take real physical risks when we're using tech for such long periods of time. How do we balance our need to use technology with the problems that come with it? Can we manage our dependence on devices that are ever more necessary in every aspect of our lives? How do we stay healthy when we're using our devices for longer and longer periods of time? I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a developmental and clinical health psychologist, and this is Life in the Time of Corona. Welcome to episode 15 of Life in the Time of Corona. Today, we're joined by Dr. Eric Pepper, professor of holistic health studies at San Francisco State University. Dr. Pepper is an international authority on ergonomics, biofeedback, self-regulation, and optimizing our own health. For many years, he has studied the health problems associated with technology use and how to mitigate those problems. Dr. Pepper is president of the Biofeedback Foundation of Europe and recipient of numerous awards, including the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback's Distinguished Scientist Award and the California Governor's Employee Safety Award for his work on ergonomics. He also has a private practice, consults for many organizations, and if that isn't enough, he is an author of numerous articles and books, including Make Health Happen and Healthy Computing with Muscle Biofeedback. His newest book is co-authored with Dr. Richard Harvey and Nancy Fass, and it's called Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping, and Pragmatic Ergonomics. I just read the book, and it's a terrific guide for tech-related health problems and what we can do about them. This seems like a particularly relevant topic, given the accelerated increase in technology use during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're extremely fortunate that he's joining us to talk about tech stress and how to manage it. Eric, welcome to Life in the Time of Corona. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Saul. It's such a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to talk with you. One, one thing I'm asking everyone who comes on to this podcast is, for, for yourself, what are some of the biggest changes that you've been making these past few months? I think the biggest changes that I've been making is to essentially incorporate in my world a way by which I can leave my computer and screen and go outside. I'm just lucky I live in the San Francisco Bay Area where there are parks. So I make an attempt to go outside because what I forget in many ways is once I sit at the screen, I'm just captured and I don't remember. So that part is critical. I think is the biggest change. The second one is the awareness of how COVID is transmitted and that is and we did a blog on that much earlier as well and how do you can boost your immune system and so it's a reminder when i'm near people to really say COVID most likely or the highest risk for COVID is if i'm in a closed space with no air circulation and and somebody's yelling or screaming or talking to me so i avoid those settings and even when I'm with other people, I would say, oh, I want to be in a place where there's air circulation. That's the most important one. And if we're talking, we can always talk more next to each other. And besides that, if I wear, I will wear a mask by definition. So I would be less of a spreader uh, for them. I think that is one of the major pieces. And the other part, which we have done not just by COVID, but continuously, and I'm lucky in my family, is the awareness that food and many other factors hinder or improve our health. And if you look at the people who are dying of COVID or get very seriously sick, almost all the patients, 94% of them have comorbidities. And these are comorbidities usually of diabetes, of obesity, of pulmonary problems, hypercardiovascular disease. But if you look at those, almost all of that, probably 80% of those comorbidities are really lifestyle patterns. And when we say that, we automatically feel blamed. You know, we blame the person, you have a bad lifestyle. I look at it differently. And, and as we wrote it in the book, we now see this as the result that our commercial world 
has really captured our survival mechanisms, and I call those traps, and thus we become obese, for example, because we don't exercise, we eat the wrong foods, there are many other factors, but those are the pieces to me that is critical. And then the other part I've become aware of during the COVID world, obviously, is that we have to communicate differently online. And what I just did in a blog recently on this is trying to teach myself and my colleagues and my students, especially when I look at all these little postcards on the screen to start giving feedback. Because we, what we forget is that we have all these evolutionary survival mechanisms by which we look at, we don't even know we do that, but we look at the cues in the body, in the face to tell me I am safe, I am not safe and et cetera. And so when we pause too long, when we have to go from mute to speaking, that pause itself is an indicator from an evolutionary perspective. Oops, the person is not being spontaneous. They are thinking, I may have to be more careful. I know I can use my intellect to say the person is safe, but these are kind of automatic responses. And when I'm talking to you, even now, or to the audience, you don't. I don't see your face removal. And all you do is you have a flat face and you don't, you're not responsive. And when we look at people who are not responsive, we, we sort of pull back a bit. And all what the COVID did, I think, is nothing new. It just exaggerated the phenomena. It's exaggerated our communication through digital devices. And again, what I have done, the biggest change is that I'm really aware that when I'm with my family now, I put my cell phone not at the dinner table anymore. I put it, I leave it outside the dinner table because if I look at it without awareness, I am pulling away out of that social bond by looking and the other person feels slightly hurt and dismissed. They may not even notice it completely or aware of it. It's a process that happens all the time. And, you know, and if I look at my students, they, they look at their cell phone without even wanting to send a message about 86 times a day. So there are many other patterns. I can keep going, but that's... Uh, oh, and, and I'll ask you too, uh, as we as we go along. <laughs> yeah, you, you talked about, well, first of all, your blog, uh, which I, I'll, I'll link to that in the... Uh, in the episode notes, your, your blog is really terrific, and I love reading it. But you, you mentioned that you know you feel sometimes yourself captured by the screen. Now, and that's something I've talked about before on this podcast. In episode thirteen, I talked with Michael Rich, a, a pediatrician, and he works with parents and families of kids who overuse technology. We talked a lot about the psychosocial problems that come with that, but there are also physical problems. And you've studied that for many, many years, the effects of computer and technology use on our health. What are some of the common health problems that come up, particularly as people use this technology more and more? There are a number of them. And let me, and I don't separate out physical and mental or emotional health. Remember, our bodies are one. So yep. if I have an emotional issue or mental, call it that way, or psychological issue, it probably reflects in my body and vice versa. So that is a critical mm -hmm. concept to keep in mind. And when I look at our students and you look at the literature, what you see is ever since the iPhone came about, we see an increasing occurrence of anxiety, depression, and suicide. And that is escalated. And COVID just made it slightly worse. But what are some of the physical problems which we are unaware of? One, we're totally unaware that we are reacting automatically to notifications. I mean, we know it, our cell phone gives a beep, there's a screen notification, I react to it. But what happens when I react, it's really activating an old survival mechanism. So that's an evolutionary perspective. So I get aroused. It doesn't mean I look like I'm running, but inside I get slightly more sympathetically aroused. That's one. Two, I tend to freeze in place without knowing I'm just sitting in front of this screen. I take the same posture. I lean slightly more forward. I start looking at the screen. I keep looking at the screen. And when I keep looking at the screens, my eyes converge. The, the, the lens has to tighten, the muscles around the lens have to tighten. And that leads to visual stress, except I'm unaware of it. That is the key. And this is totally abnormal in our evolutionary perspective. 
And I'll go back in one more moment to that. And the result is that people get eye irritation, their eyes are tired. They're zoomed out literally uh, in that way. And now think how we used to interact even before, you know, before the computer, at least you would be looking at a person that is a certain distance and then you would look beyond the person and that's another distance. So when I look nearby at the screen, my eyes tighten, that leads to vi near visual stress. And the only way the eyes can relax is if I look out at the far distance and then the eyes can diverge. And we're no longer doing that. So that is a really unknowing phenomenon. And we know the harm of that in young people, because if you go to Singapore, more than about 90, 86% of the junior high school students and high school students now need to wear glasses. They're, they become myopic, nearsighted. Because if I look all the time since a little baby at the screen, then my eyes really literally start developing and changing a bit. And that becomes the new focal length. And then when I look far away, I'm out of focus. And that is my near world. I get no relief of that. That also, not only that's eyes, I also, my eyes may get drier if some people experience that because when you're looking, you're looking at novelty, at changes. And we look at these rapid changes. So it's almost like, if, I was going to say, kind of half fear reaction, novelty reaction. But let me give that as an experience for people in a way exaggerated way. Okay, so when I see some, something new, I may almost gasp in surprise. So if you did this for the moment, when, when I make a loud noise, that could be a notification. At that moment, you probably gasp. You open your eyes slightly wider to see where it is. So just do this. So I'm going to make a clap noise. And the clap noise, you just, as if that's the notification, you quickly gasp and open your eyes wide to look what is going on. And notice you may have slightly held your breath at that moment after the gasp. Then you shallow breathe. Your eyes stay open. You don't blink because from an evolutionary perspective, that could have been a tiger in the far distance. And when I blink, I lose the tiger. So I can't afford to blink. I can't afford to move. Right. It's that little sympathetic. All right. It's a fight flight the, to the first trigger of the fight flight response. But now do it in opposite way. I'm going to, so what we did is at the, at the clap, what you did is you gasped, inhaled and opened your eyes wide. Now do the opposite. Now let your eyes be closed. Don't do this while driving, by the way, not recommended. Let your eyes be closed. And now when I clap, don't open your eyes yet. Just inhaling normally, di ideally diaphragmatically. And then as you exhale, gently open your eyes softly, like halfway. Okay. So that means I close my eyes. I now take a breath in. And during the clap, before I do anything, I exhale, exhaling and softly open my eyes and look. Let's repeat that one more time. So here I take a breath in. And now I don't have to do the clap even. And now as you start exhaling halfway through, let your eyes just open up for a moment gently. And notice what you may observe you may always feel like your eyes have more moisture in them. It's the most interesting phenomenon. And so if I want to relax my eyes, I can close them for a moment and open them, not with that startle, what's new, but with this feeling of safety, it's okay. I don't have to be vigilant. So that is, I mean, there are many other factors. People don't know they're frozen at the computer. You know, it's, some, it's, <laughs> It's like, you know, and there are a couple of things, but let me do this by, by example. Um, when you sit at a computer, we often use a mouse. So why don't you just imagine holding a mouse in your right hand or dominant hand, whatever one you use. And with this mouse, I like you to draw the letters of your street address. However, start with the last letter, not the first. And so you go, you go backwards. So if my street address is Derby street, I would draw the letter T, then I would click, then I would draw the letter E, I would click. And now the only distinction is I want you to make the height of these letters about a half inch or even smaller. Okay, are you ready to do it? Yes, when you get set, you're, you're holding the mouse and now just draw it as quickly as possible. Remember, only a half inch, quicker, don't make a mistake, quicker, 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 
And as you're doing, that's enough. And as you're doing that, did you notice you may have held your breath? Did you notice you tightened your shoulders? Did you notice your whole trunk became stiffer? Oh, absolutely. Even though I knew exactly what you were doing, I've done this demonstration before. I still do that. It's shocking. And, but the key is, Saul, as you well know, we are unaware that we're doing it when we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And for that part, I would say, if there's any tool that is useful for this, is where biofeedback or EMG feedback is one of the most useful tools to show it that you hold this tension for the audience. And you held your breath. So the other part is what we're doing is we're having sitting disease. Mm -hmm. And it's an, I'll, I'll put another concept of sitting disease in that. When we have sitting disease, two phenomena happen. One, our breathing shifts because we are breathing slightly more in our chest. Because for most of us, the clothing we wear when we stand, the waist is appropriate so we don't expose ourselves. Uh, you know, we are proper. Our belt is, but then when we sit, we are unaware that now the belt, and even if it's elastic, is slightly tighter. That means I cannot let my abdomen expand as much. I start breathing slightly higher in my chest. And especially when I start bending forward to read the screen, which so many people do. And in a way, what we're doing is nothing different than that occurred in the 19th century and the 20, early of 20th century when the many women wore these corsets. And when they wore these tight corsets, they developed an illness. People didn't initially link those two called neuroesthemia. It's, it's a strange label, but it was a very famous disease at the turn of the century where people got panic attacks, anxieties, they would faint, they would have all these medical disorders, but we now often see our hyperventilational symptoms, etc. They may have got cardiac, issues, etc. And a major factor was that their waist was too constricted and they, they were breathing shallowly in their chest. Unknowingly, when we work at the computer, we do something similar. And so at least as you're sitting and listening, you know, when you're sitting, undo your upper button of your pants if you're a man, be sure the waist can span, get bigger and let the breathing go slower. Because when we get excited and focusing, we quickly start breathing much more quickly without any awareness. That's one. And the second factor is that we are put, while sitting, we're putting extra stress on our heart. Now, how can you say that? The reason is that when we're in a vertical position, our calf muscles are often called the second heart. And what I mean by that is that blood goes down your legs arterially and then it comes back up from your legs via the via the veins but the veins have very little pressure so inside the veins are valves and it's the muscles around the veins when they tighten they would squeeze this tubing literally to push the blood up that does not occur when you're sitting unless you actively are moving your feet etc and and you can know that in a different way in two different ways, you have, people have seen this. One is if soldiers who stand in attention all the time, and when they totally stand in attention and freeze, blood will start pooling down their legs and they sometimes faint unconscious. We don't get have that problem at the computer or fault of getting going unconscious, but the process is similar. And the other similarity would be if you go hiking and walking, which many of us have done, and if you go for a long hike, and you don't move your hands too much, you're just swinging your arms, you get something called fat finger syndrome, where the finger starts swelling, the lymph builds up. Why is that? Because there is no squeezing of the, of the tissue to push the, the, the lymph back upward through the lymph channels. Again, that's what the movement does. So the most important part as we're sitting right now is get up for a moment and just get up and just stretch. It makes a difference what you do. Just do it. Just stretch. Reach for the ceiling one way or the other. And then you sit down again. If you do it for a moment, you feel much better. The f there, I mean, I can keep going, but there's one other hidden one which people are unaware of. And I think that's posture changes. And it's interesting. I was just talking to some top sports person in Canada, and they were looking at the young 19-year-olds who are coming up. Their posture is different than from 20 years ago. These people, their spine is more curved. 
they're all normal, great sports people, but the upper spine is more curved to it. Because what happens is we have the iPhone neck. We have the tech neck. All we do with the cell phone is we look down and we do this for hours at a time, minutes at a time. And when you're sitting at the computer, you do the same thing. Initially, you sit really erect because people have told you, like your mother, you're supposed to be erect and tall. However, very soon, you become, you start slouching. Your back becomes like a letter C. Your head moves forward because you're trying to look at these Excel, whatever you're watching, trying to manipulate. You can't quite see it. You slouch. But what we forget is that slouching is unbelievably detrimental. And I'll do it for two parts. One is pure physiology, that when you slouch, just think about it, the bottom of your sternum and the pubis, that area gets smaller. So it's compressing your abdomen. It means your abdomen cannot widen or expand when you breathe. It forces you to breathe higher up. You get less dynamic movement in the abdomen to, to allow venous and lymph return to go away from that digestion. So I can keep going on those. The second is it is you put yourself in a posture of hopelessness and depression and defeat. And we say, ah, now wait a minute. How can that, you know, I'm just bend, bending forward. But now think, go even think of athletes or anybody you know when they have had a loss and they feel defeated. Their body tends to slouch and collapse. It's a human, it's a mammalian response. If you look at two dogs, you have the Powerful male, the powerful dog, the alpha dog, it's tail is way up. It occupies space. And then you have the submissive dog who's collapsed. It is a signaling, a signaling, uh, it's a communication pattern that occurs throughout the mammalian uh, kingdom. And we are mammals. We do the same thing. When we are submissive, we tend to collapse. We tend to get more depressed. Think of people who are depressed. How many people when they walk into your office or you see on the street who are depressed, have a kind of lovely bounce to them when they walk and they're talking. No, they're sort of slouching and looking down. And, you know, and I know there are always exceptions. We're talking really about most. What is critical is this posture communicates not only to others. They make a judgment of that. Even when I'm sitting on, on Zoom right now, if I sat on Zoom, then you would look at me. And if I gave no facial expressions, if I start to slouch and look down, you're getting a kind of negative judgment of me, except you don't know it. But more importantly, I am communicating and conditioning myself. And I think this is what people have forgotten, that our body posture and thoughts are really linked. Like you could argue it from Pavlovian conditioning. Early on, when I got hopeless or depressed, my body collapsed. That happens many times because we all have defeats. It's normal. Then after a while, just the, so the body in a way is that bell which Pavlov used with the meat to have the dog salivate. Now, the, our posture is the same thing. It's the bell which now gets us into that body state of defeat. So now when I'm sitting and I start slouching, it evokes it triggers these hopeless, helpless, powerless thoughts. It doesn't allow us to think as easily of more future options. Think of our public language. The world is looking up. Oh my God, what a downer. Uh, I can keep going. Yeah, and with, with having all this sort of sympathetic activity and all these neurologic pieces, there's the postural piece. There's even the effects of the light on our sleep and on our vision, it's almost conspiring to make us all more helpless and defeated. And I think the data is there to a certain extent. If you look at college students, since COVID occurred, there's an increase in anxiety and depression. And depression is that kind of, you know, almost defeated. I'm not saying the students are defeated. Unknowingly, they're sitting much more collapsed. They're doing less expansive body movements which would be kind of upper movements. So they're putting themselves in that state. And if the odd, you know, if you think of an exercise, I think everybody should do with themselves. All you do to, if you think how posture affects you, do the following exercise. All you do is you slouch. And for 30 seconds, you evoke only hopeless, helpless memories and powerless memories. 
after 30 seconds, you stay in that same position of slouch and evoke only optimistic, empowering memories. Then you shift up and look up. And then for 30 minutes, when you're looking upward and are tall, think of only hopeless, helpless, powerless memories. And then after 30 seconds, shift and think only of optimistic, empowering memories. We have done this study many times and published it. And my colleague, Yimei Ling in, in Taiwan has done the, the EEG recordings of that. You show what is the findings? When you're collapsing, slouching, it's easier to access hopeless, helpless, powerless, defeated memories. It's just easier. And that is almost everybody reports that. When you're sitting collapsed, it's harder. It just takes more work to evoke positive memories. And that's what the EEG also shows. It's more, it needs to have more activation. And when you're sitting up, it doesn't mean you don't have negative thoughts. However, for many people, when they are sitting up and looking up, it's as if they're getting kind of distance to their hopeless memories. And it's often easier to think of optimistic, positive memories. And now see what so many of us do. At the computer, we sit collapsed. It means that in that moment, it's harder to do anticipatory positive thinking. You can still do it. It's just a little bit more work. We get slightly more depressed. And then once we finish the work at the computer, I move to the couch. And at the couch, I now watch all kinds of videos or series at night. I may watch you know, one episode after another. And almost everybody who sits on the couch sits slouched with their head slightly slumped. You know, it is like an... And then we all know the phenomenon. Once you sit, you know, it's awful hard to get up. Just now, as you're listening, once more, just get up. And as you get up, it makes a difference what you do. Just get up, wiggle around, and move. Just do it. Really reach up. Take a big breath. Stretch your arms. Roll your shoulders. Move back and forth. Dance in place. Unimportant. Notice, most likely, you didn't get up. Because once we sit on the chair, we are Velcroed to it. And that is part of it. So what can I do about that for myself? I do two things. One, I have a reminder on my computer that pops up, which I've set every 20 minutes or so, that reminds me, ding, do a stretch. And that is a program which is free of charge. I highly recommend it to everybody. There are many others like this, but this is free. You can call, it's from www.stretchbreak.com. So it's www.stretchbreak.com. It's free. So it's an app on the computer. The second part, which we did, which I now do, that I found equally as my students, I'm starting to slouch more. And I'm unaware that I'm doing it. I slouch because I'm looking at the computer. I slouch because I'm tired. And so what I now use is I use a little device called Upright. It's a little device that gives my posture. It really just tells tilt. And so what happens is when I slouch, it's an app on my cell phone. It communicates to my cell phone. And then the moment I slouch, it vibrates. It says, Eric Pepper, do something. Half the time, to be honest, I don't do very much. I don't really try to sit up, but I may roll my shoulders or do something as an interrupt. And I find these remarkably useful. I mean, there's so many other symptoms I can think of that can happen, but I'll do one more concept and on experientially, I think, for people, if that's all right. And that is when we are sitting, we are unaware that we hold this chronic low-level muscle tension, whether it's our shoulders are up, our head is forward, our neck is tight, our shoulder is slightly up while we're holding our mouse with our finger lifted up, ready to pounce. And we have a low level muscle tension. We don't know we're doing that. Yet that is the cost. The cost is not that you tighten a muscle and let it go. It's that it's the chronic low level tension that builds up. So, you know, if you do this an experiential piece, all you do is make the analogy of how your shoulders may be working with your hip, okay? So what I'd like you to do as you're sitting, just lift your right leg up about an inch away from the floor. That's all you have to do. And just hold it up. 
Obviously, you keep breathing and you're smiling because it's a silly exercise and just keep doing it. And what you may start noticing at this moment is that as the foot is slightly lifted up, the slight sensation of tightness, for some people, achiness start occurring in the hip flexors, in the hip, in the thigh. It's getting tired. Notice as you're feeling that we won't do it for a long time. I know you can do it longer and it depends how much I pay you as well. However, I'm not going to pay anything. So just let your leg go down, let it plop, loosen it. But think now, this, what you just did is you tighten the muscle, not massively. You just tighten it a bit, held it, and then you got discomfort. But these same muscles you can use when you're walking for miles. If I walk through Manhattan, I can walk for many blocks and I don't get tired that way. I don't get the achiness. How come? Because these muscles tighten in part of the, the, the swing phase and then relax in the other part. So they continually alternate tightening and letting go. And that is the, how muscles really are, are designed to work. And when we're working in our neck, we don't know we raise our shoulders. That may su suppress or decrease blood flow to certain areas. And I can hold the shoulders up for a long time, totally without awareness, except by the end of the evening, I'm exhausted and tired. Well, I have to say, um, Eric, you are the uh, the master of audience participation. And it, re <laughs> it reminds me... Um, uh, years ago, I gave a talk to, at Harvard Medical School, and it was in the middle of the afternoon, which is, of course, the worst time to give a talk. So I started it out by getting everybody to stand up and play patty cake, which is something you had done at a presentation. And you haven't seen anything until you see a bunch of Harvard Medical doctors uh, <laughs> doing patty, playing patty cake. Uh, that said, this pandemic, the, the COVID pandemic, has really, like you're saying, I think it's really accelerated the if you want to call it invasion of technology into all aspects of our lives, it's also really stressful in and of itself. So I think all of these problems you're talking about have to be exacerbated. We'll return to my conversation with Dr. Pepper in a moment. Listeners, I want to let you know about a special episode of this podcast that I'm planning. A defining feature of our humanity is our capacity to share our stories. I'm asking you to share yours. I'm gathering together tales of the pandemic from all of us who are living through it. Stories of loss and disruption, victories big and small, surprises and unexpected grace. Please reach out to me on social media or at inthetimepodcast at gmail.com. This global pandemic demands that we connect globally. Sharing our stories helps draw us together. Thank you. Now back to Dr. Pepper who continues to discuss the ways that the world we evolved to live in has changed significantly because of technology. This new normal can be harmful to us and our relationships, but there are ways we can mitigate the negative effects and find our ways back to health. As mo so many of us are communicating online, I would recommend to ask yourself, how do I present myself online? And that may mean uh, is your face illuminated enough? Because so many times there's glare behind us and we get to this back dark blob and nobody can quite recognize us. We're Darth Vader in a certain way looking at us. Are we, you know, the hard part is, can I show more of my expressiveness online? Because normally we look at body movements. We don't know we do that. But we look at breathing patterns. We don't, don't know we do it, but we see it. We look at how the, whether the person's foot is twitching or not. These are all informational pieces that come from the periphery. And what the most dangerous part I see is happening with online part and vision is that we are losing our visual, our peripheral vision because we're only doing this kind of vovial vision. And that may lead to significant breakdown in the future in visual, in visual health by having more breakdown of the eye and, and having, in fact, you know, more detached retinas, et cetera. Even you may see glaucoma increase because we don't get this peripheral stimulation. We need to learn to, be, to remember. You may want to ask yourself, how did I evolve so my species could survive? And remember, for most of our past, we were walking 
in food safari, food jungle, and it's only in the last hundred years, literally, that we mainly sit. And maybe we need to reincorporate some of these old survival mechanisms. And once we think of it that way, then our health can be optimized. So given given all of that stress, but also given that we have to use technology more for school, for work, for connecting to each other, what sort of tips do you have? What can we do to kind of try to keep ourselves healthy, even though we have to be using tech so much? Well, there are many possibilities and tips. However, before talking about the tips, I want to just give a concept because I think that's probably the most useful way to think about it for me, is that we often demand that we are responsible for our own health. That's almost the hidden message, the question you even ask, what can I do? And I'll give tips. However, I'm aware, and I think probably, I think I'm correct about this, that many of our patterns are really the result of the technology almost activating survival evolutionary process mechanisms, which allowed us to survive very well. And that's through natural selection, those occur. Let me give two examples. Most children like sugar or sweet. And if you, from an evolutionary perspective, sweetness is a, it represents calories. It's part of, was part of mother's milk. It is calories. And for most of our history, Famine was not very far away. So anything that was sweet, I want to eat. There were no, there's no necessity to put limits on it. And sugar was not really available. It's only in the, in the 19th century, once Britain got rid of the sugar tax, and we, you know, and with the slaves was at, or slightly earlier with the plantations, the sugar plantations, that sugar could become cheap and we have massive volume. Now we eat 150 pounds of sugar a year. And 200 years ago, maybe five pounds max. All of a sudden, you're loading this system, which gives insulin responses, et cetera, whatever, leading to obesity, inflammation, you name it. Do we blame the person for eating the sugar? Because basically in their biology, you could say evolution, there was no necessity not to have it, to turn it off. You wanted more of it. So we need to really ask the question, is it totally self-control or should we hold the corporate world and our political world responsible for looking at the profit margins of this? And, in, and I call these basically these mechanisms, these stimuli that evoke these biological responses. These are really evolutionary traps. And let me give an extreme example, and then I'll go to technology and what we can do. An extreme example is if you go to Midway Island, where you have these, where that's 2,000 miles away from any other island. It's a, a speck in the Pacific. And if you look at the beaches, what you see are all these carcasses, these dead bodies of albatrosses. You see their feathers, you see their bones, and inside the leftover, because all the, all the tissue has been digested by other animals, I suspect, or whatever, uh, are pieces of plastic left. Now, what happened? The albatrosses for... For survival, learn to recognize as glimmering in the water when that could be a fish. They dove or they ate it. And those who could do that best, their genes survived. Now in the late 19th, 20th century and early 21st century, all of a sudden the Pacific, uh, the Pacific gyrus is filled with these pieces of plastic which are coated with algae. Now the birds fly over, they see something shimmering in the water they also, they eat it. It has a similar taste because of the algae. They swallow it. That is their food, hypothetically. And they regurgitate it times their chicks, except now they die. Are the albatrosses responsible that they're so stupid not to be able to discriminate between the, the plastic or a fish? Or is it that we, as humans, have substituted the wrong thing? And I look at some of this in our technology the same way. So it isn't just the individual, it's a system perspective, a, work, a whole cultural perspective. Remember when we think of social media and our almost addiction to it and desire to check up, these are just mechanisms. Well, let me say it differently. If you look at social media and you wonder why is I keep checking 
whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or whatever, it's really activating these same evolutionary traps. Remember, I need to know what my neighborhood neighbors are doing. Otherwise, I won't survive in a small trap, in a small uh, group. Equally, when I react to the stimuli on the screen, I need to look and check it out because it could be a tiger. I could die if I don't. Okay, so what can you do? One, recognize that these are automatic traps for which you may not have easy control. That means you have to use consciousness, family rules, social rules to help it. So one, I would say set time domains, limit time. That means go to the computer and work. I go to the computer at nine o'clock till three or whatever time you set, do that. Do decrease notifications because each notification does encourages multitasking. That means you do, you do two things twice as much, half as well. And it's like the analogy of diving. You know, when you shift out of your task, it takes time to go back deep into it. So you do deep thinking less effectively. Uh, but set time. I would even say, especially with pandemic, which I see if the students, after a while, everything you do is online. You know, you, you go to class, you watch media, you date, you do socialization. Everything is, it's all the same. You don't lose any discrimination. How many of us would ever go to a bar with our boss, with our lover, with our children? We don't. But yet now this is all the same cue. I recommend that you use different settings and cues, visual cues around you. That means I know it's great to wear sloppy clothing or loose clothing where you go to work. Have a work set clothing or a study set clothing. That is the cue for you to study. Put a different picture behind your monitor to cue you. Now I'm my social media versus now I'm my work media. That will help shift. Three, distinctly take breaks every 20 minutes. Train yourself to get up or 30 minutes, get up and move. I'll never forget the first time we ever did this at San Francisco State training employees. We had this group, we taught them all this, we gave them this kind of break program. And this one man said, I have no problems. I don't have any neck and shoulder problems, nothing. Why should I waste my time doing it? Well, finally, you know, for the sake of the study, because this was a study, he agreed to do it. And then he came back the next week. I'll never forget this. And he said, you know, there's life after five. And what he really meant was when he took these 20 minute breaks, he felt more refreshed. So at five o'clock in the afternoon, he wasn't totally exhausted. He never noticed he was tired. And so taking multiple breaks is critical. So that means in your family, encourage each other to do it. Then in terms of socialization, when you're meeting with people, make an agreement, no cell phones in families at dinner time, lunch time, etc. Turn them off, get them out of visual view and out of your pocket that they can vibrate. So your brain will still check it. But the moment you see your cell phone without knowing your brain goes, I wonder what's going on. It's conditioned. So when you have dinner with your children or with your partner, put the cell phones away. I realize cell phones are great. You know, I can search information. So I'm not saying I'm anti-technology at all. It's the appropriate use at the appropriate time. It is so interesting since I live in the Bay area, that if you talk to many of the top people in Silicon Valley, and it started all the way with Bill Gates and with Stephen Jobs, they both limited technology used by their children. Stephen Jobs didn't allow their own kids to have the, the, the technology. And Bill Gates, with his daughter, put massive time limits, limits on when he saw that she was addicted or became more addicted. Many of the, of the technology top CEOs, they, in fact, do not allow their children or they put major limits on with their children not to have cell phones till age 14 or later. So put limits on use. Then, because as you look at screens, they produce blue light. We don't know it. And so that tends to suppress melatonin a tiny bit, or depending who you are. And that means when you go to bed at night, if you've been watching a screen that includes 
watching, you know, all series on Netflix or whatever media streaming media you have, it's the same thing. Your brain is basically melatonin suppressed and that will interfere with potentially sleep. It's much more than that. Because if I, before I go to bed, I better quickly check my cell phone for tomorrow. I look at the appointments. I'm radiating out blue light to my eyes that wakes me up because that's the light I see in the morning. That's one. And the second is it activates my emotional and social connection. When I look at, you know, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or, or you know, Twitter, I, I get re emotionally activated and intellectually active that again interferes with sleep. And we know in almost all the wisdom traditions before sleep, you want to evoke peaceful, quieting thoughts. In some, it's prayer. In some, of it is meditational practices. In some, it's just reading easily. But the moment you activate your brain, for many people, it becomes more disturbing. And then the final piece, which is critical, which people forget, especially with COVID, is ergonomics. And here I want to make one point on ergonomics. Even when you ergonomics is really how your body is placed in relationship to the equipment, so it puts the least amount of strain in the system. You're in the most neutral position. The challenge in ergonomics is, even if I get you the best possible correct chair, it doesn't mean that you'll sit correctly. However, if you get the incorrect chair, it will definitely mean you, you have to compensate and it takes stress. So I would highly re recommend that people do look at their ergonomics. And if you have a laptop, it's impossible by definition. Because a laptop, if your hands are at the appropriate level for the keyboard, that's almost at your knees, then you have to look down. On the other hand, if you put the screen high enough so you can be more erect and not slouch, you have to bring your hands up too much. They're fairly economical solutions using external keyboard, putting a laptop on a riser, etc. There are many possibilities, but it means taking action. And like I said many times before, movement, get up, move, and socialize. And in, in the age of COVID, that can be quite challenging at times. Absolutely. All of these ideas around taking breaks, whether they're little micro breaks or longer breaks, taking action is what you're saying, I think are ways that can really help help us mitigate the health effects while we're using technology more. Now, now in, in the spirit of it being sort of 30 minutes or more since we've been uh, communicating and, and starting to wrap up, th there are some one thing questions that I like to end with. So wh what is one thing people should take away from our discussion? When using technology, wiggle, move, and get movement. That's probably rule one. And, and what is one thing that you're doing to take care of yourself? I go for walks almost every day. And I purposely do that. And it's often challenging. You have worked too long. Oh, I don't quite feel like it. So it's easier to do it in the morning. And I find that when I feel tired and do it, it works much better. In fact, I do it, luckily where I live, I can do it with friends. And so I often do do that. Even in COVID, we, may, we wear a mask. But we can walk next to each other and it's outdoors. I think that's two. And three, which I'm becoming more aware of when I'm teaching or when I'm looking at someone who's looking at me on the screen, I exaggerate my facial and body expressions. And I would say for everyone, if you want to have social contact, remember social contact is a connection where you see the person responding to you. And on the screen, people tend not to do that as easily. So help, help your speaker out by smiling, by nodding your head, moving exaggeratedly that you're present. That really does help. And the final message is, there's not one thing. We are a system. And for some people, the biggest thing they can do is don't eat much. Eat healthy foods, because if you eat mainly sugar and then hyperventilate, you're in trouble. And do the very common sense one. It's like half the time any work of clients, I think I do grandmother therapy, which is what I'm just talking about. Stand up straight, move, wiggle, eat healthy foods, and don't be addicted. But you, it's not don't be addicted. Find something you like to do, not just on the screen. And then relax your eyes and look away. 
And finally, what is one thing that you think the coronavirus experience has changed forever? I think forever the coronavirus will have changed education and work settings that this has given the push distinctly to much more digital uh, communication uh, meetings. Uh, that will not change back totally. And we know that already. There was a push in academia to always have online courses. And when we gave people the choice before COVID between an on online course versus a in-person course, they chose the online course much easier. Now students realize it ain't much fun because all your online courses, you meet, you miss the social connection. I think the message really is we need to re respect our evolutionary origins. And that means that we need to socially connect with each other. We like to be touched. We like to be intimate. That may have changed a bit, but I think we'll come back to that. But distinctly, we may not be on Zoom as much or equivalent of many other formats, but that will definitely be part of it. And it may not be helpful always. I truly hope that people recognize, especially for young children. You know, I look at that, at the babies and the little kids and what do the moms do and dads or the caretakers? They're walking with the baby carriage and the child may be moving and they're looking at their cell phone. You know, human beings, we grow when we are connected. And we, when we give a flat face, we signal insecurity. I know when I'm talk, giving this presentation and look at Saul because I can see him, and when he nods his head, ah, I feel myself relaxing. Ah, I know I'm being understood. And that is what we all need. And I think we need to go back to that part that is critical. Well, hopefully we'll be able to do that. This is Life in the Time of Corona. You can subscribe to the show at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Please rate the show and leave me comments. Find out more at my website, saulrosenthalphd.com, and follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Dr. Saul Rosenthal. That's D-R Saul Rosenthal. Dr. Eric Pepper is a professor of holistic health studies at San Francisco State University. He is an expert on ergonomics, self-regulation, and managing, managing the health problems of technology use. He is a clinician, consultant, and author of numerous papers and books, and is most recently the co-author of Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping, and Pragmatic Ergonomics. He publishes the blog The Pepper Perspective about illness, health, and well-being at pepperperspective.com. That's pepper with one P. Information about Dr. Pepper and his biofeedback practice can be found at biofeedbackhealth.org. In the episode notes, I'll link to Dr. Pepper's sites, as well as some tips he has for transforming tech stress into tech health. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Saul, thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you, listeners. I look forward to continuing the conversation on life in the time of corona. Corona.